Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Mel Knox became a barrel broker, or barrel pimp, if you like his description, by accident when he was working in a wine shop in California. Over the space of a 43-year career, representing such famous cooperages as Taranso and Francois Frere, he's worked with many of California's greatest producers and even made a few wines of his own. It's a witty, well-informed and opinionated interviewee, as you're about to find out. Hey Mel, how are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm really well. and uh, Lovely to hear your voice. It's been way too long. and I, you, You're in your library, aren't you? I think in San Francisco yeah, at the yes, moment. Yes, I am. Still- one of these... Reading books and buying them and adding to the mess. I know the feeling, yeah. I bet you haven't got a Kindle, have you? It broke. <laughs> Is that because you threw it at the wall? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Just tell us at the top of the of the podcast how you describe yourself these days, because you've had this very varied career, haven't you? Yeah, I'm um, I'm consulting for Francois Frere uh, here in California and the United States, I suppose which means that I help uh, my successor, Julie Guffey, um, oh, once a week. It depends. Um, this is the season for um, when all the French people come over to help us sell barrels. And um, so first we had Max Gigonde from the Cooperage, who's the general manager, and now um, Gregory, uh, who's the sales manager uh, for different regions. And uh, so I help out a couple of days a week now. Yeah. So we could call um, you a se- semi-retired barrel broker. I mean, yeah. as we're going to find out, you've done a lot more than that. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the description of your childhood. I mean, you're very well known for your um, very English, I might say, so sometimes. <laughs> you said that you were born in a log cabin made of oak from the Bertrange and Tronce forests, and you learned to read and write by carving your name on oak trees. Now, I suspect that's not completely the truth where do you, were you actually brought up and was wine part of your of your upbringing i uh, grew up in olympia washington uh, uh where i uh, went to 12 years of school olympia is what that time was famous for its beer hmm. so um it was not a wine community in any sense of the word hmm. um and of course at that time neither was anywhere else except hmm. small portions of the Napa Valley and uh, the Central Valley. Um, it was a beer and uh, distilled spirits kind of country mm. back in the 50s and 60s. Mm. Um, so, But then you, you went to university in California, didn't you? You went to Stanford. I mean, did you study law or is that just a joke saying that you thought about studying law? Uh, well, I did think about it. Um, Actually, I went, uh, I visited some friends who were going to Yale Law School, and I realized that it was not for me. Mm. Um, who knows? You know, I mean, I think law school, maybe it's one of those things where you, you think, well, maybe I could have gone to law school, and what would have I done with it? I don't know. I know a lot of people who have become lawyers and doctors who ended up getting into the wine business, mm. and I keep saying, like, well, gosh, all that medical training really helped you, you know, kind of like if the, the barrel has a heart attack, 
you'll be right there, you know. <laughs> well, the winemaker might have a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly um, when, when they when they get a bad score from a journalist or something like yeah, that, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, I uh, toyed with various ideas, uh, a lot of them involving restaurants until I realized that the restaurant business uh, was is kind of a form of voluntary servitude. Mm. You know, you get up at the crack of dawn and you go to bed past midnight. And um, I, I wasn't ready for that kind of commitment. And mm. I, uh, uh, while I was working on one of my crazy ideas, I got a job driving a truck for this huge uh, wine and liquor store in Redwood City, which is now K&L, very uh, famous. Um, and uh, I had these friends from college who were running the wine department, and they kept inviting me to tastings. And the next thing you know, I was a wine nut. And uh, I ended up uh, uh, getting a job with these people in San Francisco, uh, these people uh, who had a couple of stores. And um, uh, I got to meet all kinds of people, and wineries were America really changed wine-wise during the 70s. Mm. It seemed like every month another um, fancy winery opened up. We were the first people to sell Domaine Chandon, Joseph Phelps, uh, all kinds of people, Diamond Creek, um, just a ton of people. And, um, and these people loved to entertain and were friends with Gerald Asher, Gerald, famous um, wine writer Gerald Asher. Yeah, yeah. Gerald Weinreicher. Yeah. G- Gerald Asher is a, an example of somebody where the words wine and writer are not oxymorons. You know, he's really a great writer. He and, was. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, through him, I met uh, Jancis mm-hmm. and I met uh, Stephen Spurrier. So that's Jancis Robinson, the wine writer. Yeah, Jancis Robinson. Yeah. And uh, all kinds of people. Mm. And not to mention people in France that they, they he sent me letters to be introduced to and so forth. But uh, these people love to entertain. And so must have had dinner with uh, Stephen oh, 10 times in the period from 75, 76. And he was going to do this tasting in France. And we just thought, how cute, you know. But everybody helped him. And the next thing you know, uh, um Everybody was famous. So this is this is the judgment of Paris in 1976, yeah. yes. where a, a bunch of, of Californian wines were judged better than most of their their French counterparts by French people. That was the key yes. thing, wasn't it? And, yes. and that's what shocked them because they were all confidently saying, "Oh, I know which is the Latour and the Lafitte and the the Corton Charlemagne." And then the wines were revealed, and they turned out to be I don't know, or you know. Mont, you know, Chateau Montalina and things like that, didn't they? Or uh, and Heights, and you know, I mean, which were then not as well known as they became, obviously. And I do think that the tasting sent California in a certain direction. That the winners mm. were the elegant wines that yeah. were almost built for current consumption. Mm. And but later, when they did tastings, the two wines that were just stuffed with tannin at the time, the Ridge and the Mayacamas, mm. really shone much better. But um, I think it sent California in a um, probably a good thing because uh, there are all these things, wine cold is wine sold and Mm. all these things. People, Mm. 99% of all wine that is consumed or purchased is consumed within two days. Mm. So it sent uh, a lot of us into away from these big, powerful tannic 
wines into more smooth and ready to drink approachable wines. wines yeah yeah tell me how you moved from wine into barrels i loved your description of yourself as a as a barrel pimp i mean so this was this was a new rather than the oldest profession when you started was it was anybody doing doing what you were doing in those days a little bit i mean um hmm. basically i have to credit becky washerman here um we were buying wine well one of the guys i work with and a customer started a company where Becky would pick the uh, uh, pick out the wines in France, and um, Phil would finance it, and my uh, working buddy would uh, sell them. Hmm. And so I got to know Becky because I had to I had to sell the wines that we bought, hmm. and she would stay with with us. Um, and and one time she had a terrible flu. This must have been about 1980. And I know what it's like. You're traveling. Uh, on any kind of trip, you know, it's your two week vacation to Hawaii and you start uh, getting ill. That's no, you, you see the whole world ending on you in a way. And so I said, Oh, don't worry, Becky, I'll sell them for you. And I sold three containers in a week. And <laughs> she kind of looks at me in somewhat of amazement and kind of like, like, well, maybe we could work together. And that was and, it. Yeah. But we're, so I started working with Becky on barrel sales and so forth. Hmm. And we did that for 10, 12 years, and then I gradually bought her out of the business. Mm. And um, and it really started to grow in the 90s. The, 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 the 80s um, were, were good for me, mm. but the 90s were, I, were just ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Everybody, there was this insane craze for barrel-fermented, barrel-aged wines. Mm which unfortunately has uh, gone away uh, to a certain degree. I, mean, I, want to, I want to ask you about that, that yeah. at the end. But listen, I love reading your stuff. You're, you're deeply, you know, you're a great reader and you're deeply knowledgeable about barrels and you wear this learning very lightly in a way. Can you just tell us a little bit about the historic links between wooden barrels and wine? Because they go back a long way, don't they? And I think you were saying at one point they were used to transport fish, right? I mean, lots of stuff, beer, fish, and presumably anything. Probably before World War II, barrels were used to ship everything. I won't say everything, but, you know, flour, um, uh, gunpowder. Uh, and, and they say around 1910, over a million barrels were made to ship, uh, like, salted herring. You just think, whoa. And, um, and then gradually... Um, Plastics and metals, uh, you, you know, we now the idea, for example, of a brewery mm -hmm. that has wooden barrels for its uh, uh, real ale is a, a novelty. Mm -hmm. um, but I suppose before World War II, wood barrels were made out of wood. Yeah. Um, and, of course, uh, wine barrels were used for shipping wine as well as for aging wine. Um, and... Uh, now the primary uses are for barrels are in the spirits business. Mm. The bourbon business consumes mm. something like close to 2 million barrels a year of American wow. oak, American mm. white oak, uh, which are used once and then shipped mm. to Scotland, Spain, mm. uh, Asia, all sorts of places for further use. Or tequila, rum, Canadian whiskey, so forth, use these secondhand barrels. Mm. Uh, and there's a huge business, 
uh, Francois on these cooperages in Scotland to take uh, used bourbon barrels, uh, put bigger heads on them, more staves, and turn them a 190-liter barrel into a 450-liter barrel. Interesting. Just tell us that you've mentioned it there about American oak. Which types of wood are used for wine? Is it, is it mostly oak? I mean, you hear about chestnut sometimes and acacia and things like that, but is, is oak is the main one. And what are the main types of oak that are used? Yeah, for well, uh, first of all, uh, people always say, well, what a friend of mine made of something in a cherry barrel. And I always say, don't forget, we have oak forests where you have a group of cherry trees. It's called an orchard. And um, a chestnut is astringent if it's not, you don't put some kind of waxy thing on the inside of it. Mm. We we did make 10 chestnut barrels for um, Madavi one time, and, and it was like the wine stuck to the roof of your mouth. Uh, <laughs> and a friend of mine then bought the wine, was working at Bonnie Dune, bought the barrels when they were 10 years old and worked out pretty well finally. Um, but ch- chestnut is astringent. Acacia has a peculiar flavor, and mm. some people like it. I I don't think it'll ever be a big thing. So it's basically oak, which mm. there's a lot of oak in the world, um, and uh, different oaks, different species of oaks, can have different flavors. Quercus alba, which uh, is gro- grown in the United States, is what you get a taste of when you open a bottle of Jack Daniels or a Young Ridge Zinfandel. Mm. Um, Quercus Rober and Quercus Cecile are found in Europe. Quercus Rober is a tree that looks like the kind of tree where Robin Hood and his merry men would hang out under with a big crown and, you know, um, and that has wide grains and is what we get in like limousine Mm. oak. So used uh, for so, cognac and things like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, although it can be very good for wine, but it has more yeah. tannin in it. Mm. has to be air-dried longer to minimize that. And then Quercus Cecile, or Petrea, grows, uh, you know, in France, Hungary, um, various parts of Europe. And that has that looks more like, I would say, a Douglas fir. It grows up tall and straight with a small crown. Um, and... Uh, that is primary. That is the classic oak used for wine these days. And so, can you do you find that you can actually taste different forests, as it were, when you're tasting barrels? I mean, do you say? I mean, Limousin is easier, as you said, because it's got those those wider pores. But you know, between Vosges and Trancé, could you taste a wine and say it's a Vosges barrel or a Trancé barrel? Maybe when I was younger. <laughs> but uh, I know the feeling. You know. Uh, part of it is we did an experiment. Uh, Francois did an experiment with Bouchard Perifis over 20 years ago at the international for the, and we did the tasting at the International Pinot Noir Celebration in McMinnville. You've been there, uh-huh. and um, uh, we had tight grain and wide grain wood from three different forests. Mm. And what you see is that if you get tight grain wood from Limousin, it tastes like tight grain wood from the center of France. Yeah. Or you get white grain wood from Vosges or the center of France. It tastes like limousine. Mm. So I think the grain width is more important mm. than the origin uh, of the wood. Now, to a certain mm. degree, the origin dictates what kind of tree grows there. Mm. Um, Quercus Cecile 
does better in drier areas, uh, rober better in wetter areas like England, you know, <laughs> or these days yeah. um, anywhere in California. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to ask you, you know, what what makes a good barrel? I mean, it's it's partly grain width, is it? It's 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 seasoning, as it were. It's air drying, all those things. What else is it? There's a bunch of factors. Yeah. I think obviously the species of the oak is very important. Mm-hmm. That if you do dry um, American oak for a long time, mm-hmm. it does start to taste more like French oak. We did a we we had a cooperage in Oregon where we used Oregon oak, sometimes called Gary oak, which is just a, it, it just tastes like. Um, well, an Australian said to me, "It tastes like Christmas punch, mate." You know, just all those cinnamon nutmeg qualities, incredibly pungent, um, and that had its own unique flavor. Um, American oak tends to be very strong in vanillins, mm. to my way of thinking, or coconutty vanillins. Um, French oak or European oak tends to be a little bit more subtle, but they all have their own flavors. Mm. But a lot of the flavors of the oak are determined by the seasoning of the wood. You mm. you mill the wood, you make it into what we call marin, which mm. is kind of pieces of wood that are eventually going to be trimmed and jointed and turned into staves for barrels, and you set this out somewhere to dry. Mm. Well, you're seasoning the wood, not just drying it, and uh, bitter phenolics are liberated, are are neutralized, polysaccharides are liberated from the wood, and the wood changes. And where you dry the wood is also important. Mm. Um, The Kadar Cooperage got an investment from Terenceau, and uh, built a new stave mill in Hungary. They were making their wood in a suburb of Budapest, um, and they were drying the wood there, and uh, they moved, so they built a new stave mill and drying yard closer to the forest, up near the Tokai wine region. Hmm. They they spaced the, the staves further apart as they were air drying, and they let the wind and the rain uh, come in and um, and it completely changed the results that that, that yeah. the Hungarian oak had had this flavor as I said before of, of Christmas punch or of mm. nutmeg and all those cinnamony things and all of a sudden it was much more subtle so that was the flavor of Budapest you were getting in those yeah maybe so <laughs> I'm not sure where you got the Buddha or the pest. <laughs> oh, another thing I want to ask is, I mean, do barrel producers have their own sort of thumbprint, as it were? Can you can you taste a barrel and say, I mean, I think I can, say so that's a Francois Frere barrel or that's a Terenceau barrel. Uh, I mean, am I being a bit simplistic? I mean, do you see that too? You know, you know it's funny. I remember when I sold wine and there were certain centimillions that we would have and you would taste them and they'd have a kind of a, a cocoa quality, a bit of a chocolatey quality aftertaste. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that that was something they got from Natalier barrels. Yeah. Don't ask me how. Uh, but, of course, Francois was always famous for its toastiness. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, we're getting into the third stage. We've selected the, the wood and we've air-dried it, and then we make the barrels. And the Francois barrels were a lot of barrels in Burgundy 
were shaped by heating them over a wood fire. Mm. And but other cobras used cauldrons of boiling water. Mm. But this is an old shipbuilding technique. You know, you heat you can heat wood and bend it, which seems until I saw it, I thought, whoa, that's amazing. You know, you think of people, you know, making horseshoes or something. That's mm. but but I never thought you could bend wood so much. Anyway, they would use a fire. Other cobras would use natural gas. Other cobras would use um, uh, steam or boiling water. The Dargo and Jegle cooperage in the Beaujolais uh, does that. Um, and actually, Mondavi did an experiment about 1975 where they said, well, to Demptos, uh, would you dry, uh, toast the wood or shape the wood using natural gas? And they discovered the kind of what they liked went away. You know, so which is then, the toast, yeah, which was the so fire, then, right? Um, yeah. Yours truly stepped into the picture and said, "Hey," and it was a different time. Actually, Selma Long told me a story. Um, uh, it's uh, Women's History Month now, I think, or something like that. Mm. And so Selma Long there's a there's, there's a lot of credit for mm. pioneering women in wine, but she told me that Becky basically just showed up at the Cooperage one day with like a small barrel under her arm and just said, somebody uh, just said, hi, could I talk to your winemaker? The receptionist buzzes Zelma and someone says, sure, why not? <laughs> and so the next thing I know, actually about 1979, a bunch of us, including Zelma and me and Mike Richmond, who started Acacia, we're all in Burgundy together, uh, learning from this seminar that Becky created and had a lot of fun, but it was a different time. There weren't very many people selling barrels. Yeah. There was basically Demptos, mm -hmm. Natalier, and Sarug, which is a cooperage in Nuit Saint-Georges. And um, that was represented by Dick Graff, who became famous uh, for Chalone. Chalone. Yeah. 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 Did, 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 listen, I'm going to ask you something about the the chemistry of wine. You've made your barrel, you've toasted it, and then you've got a different size or whatever. How, how well do we understand the chemistry of wine maturation in wood? Are there things that we can't quite explain? I mean, do we understand them better than when you started out in the 80s? Well, when I started out, there were basically two articles in Wines and Vines about barrels, and most of them involved how to stack your barrels or something like that. <laughs> and um, that was it. And then... Ten years later, there was a plethora of symposiums. There was a big one in, in Santa Emilio in 1991, one at San Francisco State in 93, and all kinds of research was done on barrels. And I think um, the key for barrels, in my opinion, is, obvi is obviously you want wood that is – well, it depends on what kind of wine you're making. You're making Cabernet. Hmm. You're trying to tame the beast. You know, if you let Cabernet kind of make itself, you're going to have maybe something pretty tannic. Mm -hmm. So you're always doing these techniques to air, to a, to, to, so that the wine, the tannins polymerize, etc. And I think there you need a wood that is well seasoned because mm -hmm. you don't want to add wood tannins to the wine, um, or not astringent wood tannins. In uh, Burgundy, on the other hand, which is very made from Pinot Noir, which is a lightly colored grape variety, you, you probably don't need all that seasoning. You're actually trying to uh, 
as Arnold of Schwarzenegger would say, pump it up. You know, you 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 are trying to add a little beef to the the, the product. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to me, uh, in the aging of of uh, of wine, particularly Burgundian varieties, mm-hmm. uh, lees contact is really important. We see that the lees have uh, glutathione, which sounds like something you would take for your glutes, um, but is an actual very powerful antioxidant. And um, and I I feel like when you age wine with its lees, even after bottling, it gains something. The wine gains something. La Lubie's Le Roi of Domaine Le Roi um and uh Romani Conti once said that the lees nourish the wine and people go, Well, what is that? That's one of the peasant things these French people say. But she was on to something that the lees really enrich the wine. They also act as kind of a buffer along with the toast between the alcohol in the wine and the wood tannins and they help smooth things out. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, are there, what you're saying is that maybe the other some grape varieties are better suited to to wood aging th- than others. I mean, we've talked about lees, we've talked about the age of the barrels, maybe the size of the barrel. I mean, w- are there varieties that don't need wood at all? I mean, I, it's probably a bit unfair of me to ask you that. But well, I mean- <laughs> um, no, every variety needs oak, and at least two hundred percent new oak. Uh, obviously, we, we wouldn't want a Gewurztraminer or a Riesling hmm. that that tastes like a wannabe Chardonnay or mm. white Burgundy. Um, there's a whole category of wines there. Oh, as you know, I made a Vermentino with a friend mm. that we used to say had got a kiss of oak, which is when the hose went through the barrel room from the stainless steel tank to the bottling line. <laughs> um, you, did, you didn't, you don't use things like, I was going to ask you this, you don't use oak chips and staves. I mean, are, are those kind of anathema to a barrel broker? Do you think, oh God, chips, staves, terrible. Yeah, actually, micro, micro barrels as they're called in Australia, aren't they? Uh, Quercus fragmentus is <laughs> a better. term. Uh, you'll find in the Oxford uh, Companion to Wine. Um, the... Um, well, you know, if you're making wine that sells for under a certain price point, you, you just can't use barrels because you have mm. to pay somebody to tend the barrel. You have to have a place for the barrel. Mm. Whereas with these barrel alternatives, you mm. you can put everything into a 5,000-gallon tank and hope for the best. And uh, uh, actually, when the Oregon project started, uh, we realized that what we had, we would mill the wood and we would have the the, the bark went to mushroom farmers. The, the sapwood went to a steel mill. They just needed any sort of heat. The, um, the best, of course, the staves, we air-dried. And then the quality leftovers, we bundled and air-dried and made chips out of it and sold it. Mm-hmm. And uh, although the Francois sold this business, now the guy who runs it, that's his main business is he makes chips and sells them to uh, huge wineries in the Central Valley here. Yeah. And... Um, you know, it's what is it the pig farmers say? We we use everything but the squeal. <laughs> and, 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 and so yeah, that's, so there's a place so for those not? things, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, not obvious. Now, like I think Zinfandel, for example, there there's a lot of once you get past Cabernet, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay, at least traditionally made in their countries of origin, mm. 
then you get into arguments. I mean, or, or differences of opinion. There are all sorts of ways that Rhone wines are made, for example, mm-hmm. or Italian wines. You know, yeah. uh, Pinot Noir tends to be a variety that just loves oak, whereas Sangiovese is a variety that seems to repel it um, in some ways. Um, yeah. You know. you, you've mentioned some of the projects you've been involved with, also when you were selling barrels and I've met them with you, you know, some of the great winemakers, especially of California. Were there any that you really enjoyed working with? Most of all, I mean, I know Jim, the late Jim Clendenham, wonderful guy, was a great friend of yours. And did you make sure they got the best barrels or not? I, I made wine with four different Jims. <laughs> I made wine with a guy named Jim Olson, who I work with in retail and when I taught classes at uh, UC Extension. We made a gamay together. Uh, I made wine with Jim Edelman, who really runs Au Bon Climat to this day. He's been running it really for twenty over 20 years uh, with Clendenin and Jim Moore. And, of course, uh, making wine with Clendenin was always a lot of fun. Mm. Um, yeah, that probably was, I made uh, probably the most fun we had because um, – well, um, you know, anybody who's ever been to lunch at Au Bon Climat knows you'll meet this crazy bunch of people from all over the world. Um, uh, Jim would have 15 different wines open, including, of course, Bob Lindquist from Coupe would be there. Um, by the way, it was Jim Clendenin and Bob Lindquist who gave our late friend Dick Ward his nickname of Dr. Dick. I didn't because know that. There so is Dr. Man, Dick at Saintsbury, yeah? Yes, because yeah. there was a man. I never made wine with Saintsbury, mm. sadly, but um, uh, there's a man, Dr. Dick, Dr. Richard Dick Peterson, Ph.D. And uh, so Jim and Bob started calling him Dr. Dick. because, <laughs> uh, And so then he retired for a while. So they made, I think, Dick Graff, Dr. Dick. And then they made Richard Sanford, Dr. Dick, but finally they all kind of retired in one way or the other. Poor uh, Dick Ward was ill left, and so we made him Dr. Dick, <laughs> and his email address was Dr. Dick at Saintsbury. And, uh, you know, I miss both Dick and Jim to this day. Yeah, so, so do I. Both both dear friends of both of us. I'm ours, going I miss them both. to a baseball game with David Graves soon. Oh, uh, send him my love. As soon life. as the sky's clear. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was just down at Au Bon Climat, and they're doing great. I mean, you these winemaking projects you've been in, involved in were sort of something on the side a bit, but you were involved in Oregon at a crucial point, and also you were an early champion of, of Italian varieties, weren't you? You've mentioned Vermentino, but also Barbera. Um, you know, did you enjoy that bit of, of what you were doing, the wine bit, or was it just like a bit of a bit of fun and a bit of a diversion? Well, I, enjoy, I mean, I enjoyed it in a lot of ways. Um the the fun part of wine is making it. The difficult part is selling it. <laughs> yeah. I was visiting a guy one time, and uh, well, he had all this um, these wines from my barrel customers there. But he said that our Easy Labat Chardonnay, the wine I made with Clendenin, was too oaky. And as I said to uh, one of the uh, guys who made the wines he was stocking, I said, "I had to think: Am I making more money from you, Randy?" Or or from uh, wine sales, and I said, "Shut your mouth." <laughs> but uh, um, 
we, I, we did do a lot with Oregon. I did do a lot with Oregon. Not only the project that Clendenin and I did with Oregon Pinot Noir, but with Eric Hamaker, um, who uh, we made Oregon Chardonnay. Mm. And I felt that Oregon Chardonnay, this is from going, say, to the Hospice de Bone wine tasting every year, mm. tasting young Chardonnay, you know, a month from being grapes or so, and tasting young Oregon Chardonnay, I realized that the the Oregonians were kind of giving up on it, kind of like if you had a, a two-year-old who couldn't read Proust, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I got Eric to barrel ferment Oregon Chardonnay, mm-hmm. and clonal issues were important. Uh, we found a good uh, batch of Draper clone Chardonnay, um, and we barrel fermented it, put it through malolactic, did all these things that, as Jim and I, Jim Clendon and I used to say, we stole from Dominique Lafont. Um, and, um, and, the the broker, his broker who originally was going, oh, don't make Chardonnay was going like, well, can I get more? And we did very well, you know, and I'm very happy to see that Oregon now is becoming not known not just for Pinot Noir, but for Chardonnay. Interesting. T- tell me something. I mean, you, you once described Robert Parker, you know, the wine, very powerful wine critic in his day in the in the 90s and early 2000s as your best salesman. I mean, he's somebody who liked the aromas and flavours of certain types of oak, famously so. I, I just wonder, you know, has that changed? Uh, do you sense that winemakers and wine critics are, are less keen on those flavours than he was maybe in the time? Did, did Parker turn people off oak? Uh, well, I don't think he turned people off oak. Indeed, and he gave a talk in 1991 at the IPNC mm. where uh, he talked about his favorite Pinot Noirs from around the world, and I think about three-quarters of them were made in our barrels, and people started lining up at my table. But uh, So um, thank you very much. Uh, yes, and then, of course, with Helen Turley, he uh, loved the Cabernet she made in Terrence barrels, mm. and um, that didn't hurt. Um, and I suppose you do have with a group of people who are like, if they taste oak, it's bad or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually think now what we have is kind of what you've had in the UK for a long time, mm-hmm. which is a whole bunch of different voices. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. not just we had two voices, the Wine Spectator and Robert Parker. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it was kind of boring. So I think um, people, uh, you know, it's a different world, but, uh, you know, there is kind of an anything but Chardonnay mo- uh, uh, movement and things like that. And But, I mean, uh, you know, when I started in the wine business, we had shelves for Loire Valley wines, Alsatian wines, all the German wines. I think we're getting back to, I mean, I went into a store here one time and it was all Chardonnay and Cabernet, you know. And- and now it's much more diverse. Now now we're getting back to a much more variegated world of wine, yeah. and I think that's for the good. Mm. And the both Cooperages that I represented are doing just fine. Yeah. So, so Yeah. Well, I think that's good. I mean, you know, as you said at the beginning, you're semi-retired now, although you're still very, very active. I did um, pick a good time to retire. Yeah, you did. I think you did. Forest I fires. Did. Forest well, fires. Well, I want to ask you that. Shipping it- problems. Yeah, but what are, what are the biggest changes you've seen in the wine world, you know, in the, what, 
30 years? You've been more than 30 years you've been involved in it. Um, you know, you started in the early 70s, didn't you? 50 years, really. Um, not just in California, but around the world. I mean, forest fires, or certainly great, a greater regularity of forest fires is one of them. What else have you seen? Well, uh, climate change aside, clearly um, countries like Australia and Chile, for example, I don't know if you've ever been to a Spanish-speaking country, uh, Tim, except when you paid for the Argentinian football team. Um, I I was beginning to think that your real name was Atkinsalis or something. I see so many posts from you from Spain. and uh, But you know that we had – Concha y Toro was it when I got into the wine business. We had it for $1.99, and actually – the wine was so good, I thought, Josh, I wish I had studied Spanish. You know, um, and uh, Chile and and uh, Argentina have completely changed. The Argentinian wines were just terrible back then. Um, Italy is completely transformed. Mm. Um, you know, wines from Spain and Portugal. or Spain, Spain was always making good wines. At reasonable prices, you know, so that the the whole different uh, there's there's so much more to the wine world, and now of course people are Greek wines. Mm, Greek amazing. wines are just Retsina. Yeah, um, yeah. wines from yeah. uh, Pinot Noir from Germany, and now of course mm. we're having English sparkling wine and all these different sort of things. Mm, mm. Um, and what about California? How's California changed? Well, of course, California was basically the Napa Valley. Um, the Central Valley, a little bit in Sonoma, um, and um, and of course Gerald Asher was involved in the development of Monterey Vineyards with Dr. Richard Peterson, um, which is a huge endeavor to plant uh, grapes in Monterey County, which is in yeah. the which was difficult in the beginning. They had their problems. The wine sometimes tasted like uh, they made a dessert wine that, as a friend of mine said, combined your vegetable course with your dessert course. Um, tasted like sweet canned asparagus. Um, but now, you know, Monterey County is full of – I was just tasting at Pasoni the other day. Just a whole bunch of great wines, Morgan, Roar, all sorts of things. There were a few outliers back then, like Ridge and Shalon. Um And, of course, Santa Barbara County has exploded. Yeah. With- so, so are you confident about the future of California, despite the wildfires and global warming? Um, well, I have to say that I think if we don't deal with uh, cli- climate change, we're all cooked. Yeah, that- and not just in California. Everywhere. Yeah, all over the world, yeah. Yeah. And um, – and then, of course, there's the fact that wine, you know, there's this generational theory of wine consumption or of any consumables, period. Mm-hmm. You know, that if your dad drank Watney's, mm-hmm. you're going to drink, you know, something else. You know, mm-hmm. you're not uh, that, um, as a friend of mine said, that if you're in a watching a focus group and everybody says, um, Oh yeah, my dad drinks uh, cognac. Mm. It's time to sell your stock, you know, and get into <laughs> Armagnac or something. <laughs> something and so, 
we we seen that my generation was a wine generation, mm. and we were kind of reacting to our parents' mm. uh, cocktail uh, generation, mm. and um, but now cocktails are coming back. Bourbon, which was dead, mm. I wouldn't say dead, but not doing very well thirty years ago, is on fire. Mm. Um, so you know there is a question of our younger people going to keep drinking wine. Mm. That's, that's um, the, I mean, it, I mean, I think those are the two big questions, aren't they? Really. Anyway, I mean, we could we could talk for hours, um, but it's been amazing talking to you. I mean, it's so so great to see you and just hear your views yeah, about the, the world of wine and barrels. And I hope to see you very soon. And I'm raising a virtual glass to our two very dear late friends, to Doctor yes. Dick Ward from Saintsbury, and also to dear Jim Clendenon, both yes. of whom left us too yes, early. So, guys, come to California sometimes. We speak Spanish here. You'll be understood. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it very much. Great All to right. see you. Okay, see you, Mel. take care. Bye, man. Bye, bye. Well, Mel's quite a character, isn't he? And I love the way he talks about and explains the world of wood. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Frank Massard from Priorat in Spain. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at TimAtkinMW. See you next week.